That hymn was written by a man named John Newton, a man who probably most of you know before he came to Jesus Christ was an incredibly odious kind of person. He was a slave trader. He was a mean kind of man. And when Jesus saved him, that testimony that he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, was something that he deeply, deeply felt. And it's a particularly fitting introduction to our passage this morning as we continue to go through the book of Mark because this passage is about the purpose for why Jesus came to earth. Now, we're here in the book of Mark in chapter 2, and we have been already identifying who this king is. That's what Mark wants to tell us. The herald of the king, the good news of the king has come, and now he's telling us what kind of king he is. We've understood that he's a sovereign king, that he's a sympathetic king, that he is a servant king. We understood the last time we were in Mark, uh, two weeks ago, that he is a sin-forgiving king. He has all authority. But also... Mark is not just introducing us to who this king is, but he's introducing us to who the enemies of the king are, to, the, to who the opponents of the king are. In fact, if you were to look at all these uh, stories, these vignettes in Mark chapter 2, you would see that each one of them involves opposition. People questioning the king. People wondering, how can you actually do this? Jesus was controversial in his day. And the reason he was controversial was, well, he was a little bit like a magnet. You know a magnet, you've probably played with one when you were a child that has two poles, it has a positive end and it has a negative end. What happens when you touch the right end of a magnet to another piece of metal? What does it do? It just sticks. But what happens if you turn the magnet around and try to use the other pole? What happens? It repels. That's what a magnet does. And so it's not surprising that when you see Jesus, who was a magnetic influence to all kinds of people everywhere, and they were sticking to him, they were following him, they were listening to him, that there were some people who were repelled by him, who found him to be not just curious, but very significantly problematic. And mostly this was the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the very word Pharisee, means separated one. That's literally what it means. To be a Pharisee was to be a separated one. And these Pharisees lived by their name because they gloried in how separated they were. They were not like the common people. They were not like those who did not follow all the scribal regulations and traditions and interpretations of the Old Testament law. They absolutely exalted, they rejoiced, they found their meaning in value in how separated and how religious 
they actually were. And over and over in the Gospels, these are the people that are not attracted to Jesus. They are repelled by him. They can't get anywhere near him in a spiritual sense. And notice here, this has already happened in the last story that we looked at. Jesus is preaching to this packed out house and, and a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed, he cannot walk, is carried on a bed by four friends. They can't get in the door, so what do they do? They literally make a hole in the roof and drop him in front of Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And what do the Pharisees say? No way. No way. Who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus' point to them essentially is, yeah, you got it. Who can? And how does he prove it? He says, what do you think it's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? That no one can prove visibly, externally? Or to say, get up and walk? It's a lot easier to say something that cannot be proven. But Jesus said, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something that can be proven. Get up and walk. And this man gets up and walks and carries his bed to his home. Now that should have been the wake-up call for them, that this man is different. He has authority not just to, to heal people, he has the authority to forgive people of their sins, but they don't get it. Now that's where we start here in Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. And he went forth again by the seaside. Which seaside? Well, where is he? He's in Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. So this is the seaside, a large freshwater lake. And all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. This is what he just routinely did. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. Now we'll talk about what that is. And said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat or at, at dinner... At a supper in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans, that's tax collectors, we'll get into that, and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? It blew their minds. He is eating a meal with tax collectors. When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole, they that are well, have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners to repentance. The title of the message this morning is very simple. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for sinners. And not only did the Pharisees miss his authority to forgive sins, they challenged it. They missed his very purpose in coming in the first place. He came for sinners. Let's start here. We're going to, just going to break this into three little pictures that we're going to look at here. First of all, we're going to look at this, what I'm going to call a shocking conversion of a man named Levi. And then we're going to look at what I'm going to call a controversial meal. It was a meal with other tax collectors and sinners. And finally, we'll close with a simple explanation that is given by Jesus for his actions. Let's start with this shocking conversion. Again, just picture yourself here 
along the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. Jesus has crowds that are flocking to him. He is teaching them. And as he passed by, Scripture says, so he's, he's walking. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. Now let's pause right here. What is the receipt of custom? Levi was a tax collector. And I don't think I need to tell you that in every age, tax collectors aren't very popular people. They're no more popular at the IRS today than they were at the receipt of custom back then, but they were even more hated back then. Now, why? Why were they hated? What was the problem? Well, let's think again about a little bit of the context that we have here. Who was ruling this whole area? Who was in charge? What empire were the Jews under? The Roman Empire. And they hated that to begin with. The Jews wanted desperately to be free, like they were in the days of David and Solomon and these great kings. They hated the idea that they were under the thumb of Rome and of the Caesar. Now, under Rome, there were kings that were over various parts of Judea or of Galilee. Do you remember earlier we talked about Herod Antipas? That name is familiar to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the king under Rome, the vassal king, the puppet king, if you will, over Galilee. And he wasn't very popular either. He wasn't a very nice man. And so here we see that Herod Antipas would have tax collectors. Tax collectors who would collect money from people. And they would actually sit in a booth. They would sit on a road. It's actually said that Galilee had one of the most significant roads in that time. The commentator Barclay quotes, Judea is on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the way to everywhere. The roads, trade roads, would go through Capernaum where Jesus was. And there were import taxes and there were export taxes. And who collected them? The tax collector. That's who, the one who had the authority. It said that the tax collector actually had the authority to stop someone and say, pay taxes, pay this, pay it to me right now. Now again, you can imagine a Jew who hated the fact that he was under Rome who resented Herod Antipas as a puppet king of Rome, and now that tax collector can stop anyone and has the authority of the state to say, pay, pay your taxes, pay your import, your, your export taxes, almost as if, right, when you might drive down I-94 going down to Chicago, you might be going through Illinois or Indiana. What are you going to run into? You're going to run into toll booths. you got to stop and you got to pay the toll. But now imagine that the tax collector didn't even have an amount that was a sign. You have to pay this much. The tax collector just told you what you had to pay and you had to pay it. And guess what if you knew this? He was a crook. You see, these tax collectors... Becoming a tax collector was a very desired job among cheats... You had to actually be very invested into it. But once you were in, once you were a tax collector, you were getting rich. Why? Because sure, you had to pay some of it to the state. You had to turn it around. But guess what you collected over and above what the state demanded? It was all yours. It was pure profit. 
So what do you think people did? These tax collectors were known thieves because they would shake you down. They would say, you need to pay X. Well, you didn't actually have to pay X. You had to, pay, you had to pay something much less significant than X. But the tax collector got to say, pay it. And then they paid it. And they kept, gave some to Herod Antipas. And they kept the rest. And they got rich. So think about what was happening. Here are people who are traitors to the Jewish people. Why? Because they're literally working for the enemy. Now, again, it's hard for us to think about this in our country that we're in today. But imagine if you were in occupied a territory in World War II by the Nazis. The people that were collecting taxes for the Nazis, imagine how they would be viewed. And then imagine how they would be viewed if they were stealing your money and getting rich off it. In fact, it said these tax collectors were so odious to the people. If you became a tax collector, it didn't matter whether you were a Jew, you were excommunicated from the synagogue. You could not be a part of the Jewish religious customs and the synagogue life if you were a tax collector. That is how hated they were. In fact, Jesus even appeals to this in his own teaching. He recognizes this in Matthew 21. Jesus says to these Pharisees, he said, the publicans, when, it, when you see the word publican in our King James, it's tax collector. That's what it means. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into heaven before you do. That would have been controversial to these religious separated ones. But what was he doing? Who was he pairing tax collectors with? Prostitutes. In other words, he was saying, under your own social system, who are the ones at the same level, in a sense? We're talking tax collectors and we're talking prostitutes. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he is commanding us to love our enemies. And he says these words, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans, the tax collectors, the same. What example was he giving? He was saying the worst of society does that. What better are you if you only love your friends? No, you be different. You love your enemies. That was the whole point. He was trying to uh, identify what they would have seen as the worst of people. Tax collectors were on the level of murderers, on the level of prostitutes, on the level of common thieves. They were the dregs, the scum of society, particularly to the observant Jew. That's who Levi was. And Jesus sees him sitting at the booth where he is robbing people on a daily basis. He is still participating in what made him so hated to the Jews. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Now stop there. Well, Jesus has already said that to Peter and to James and to John, but, I mean, they were fishermen. That was an honest job. Sure, they got up and followed, but there's nothing particularly odious morally about being a fisherman other than maybe to the fish. But outside of that, there's no problem. But now this was someone else. Jesus says, follow me. In other words, Levi wasn't the one coming to Jesus. Jesus was going to Levi. Levi wasn't the one like the people who came to John and were baptized by him saying, hey, we're ready to give up this lifestyle. What should we do? Jesus came to him in his sin 
in the depths of his odious behavior and said, you follow me, I want you. Uncle Sam, if you will, wants you. Now, what did Levi do? Notice. And he arose and followed him. He just got up and followed him. Now stop there for just a minute. This is a big deal. This is frankly probably a bigger deal than Peter, James, and John. Because it's been noted that Peter, James, and John could always get back into the fishing business. It, there weren't that many barriers to entry, the fishing business. You needed a boat and you needed a net. Do you know what this guy would have given up to become a tax collector in the first place? It was really hard, as I understand it, to become a tax collector. It was a really significant investment to get into that business, if you could even call it a business. And for you to walk away from it, just to get up and say, I'm done with it, was a huge sacrifice. Because you weren't getting back in once you did that. This was an entire renunciation of, of the business and occupation that had made him wealthy. You say, how do you know he was wealthy? Because right after this, he invites Jesus into his house. And scripture tells us in one of the parallel passages in the Gospels that it was a big house. He was a wealthy man. He had gotten wealthy by stealing people's money. And now he gets up at the words of Jesus, follow me, and just leaves it all behind and goes right after him. He utterly abandoned the cash cow. That's pretty hard for people to do. Think of the rich young ruler. He couldn't do it. Jesus said, get up and follow me, give away everything. And he said, no. But what did this man do? He did. Now, I just want to make one point about this. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, gave up, in a sense, everything to follow Jesus. But what did he receive? Do you know we see in the book of Matthew this same story? Do you know Levi, the son of Alphaeus, his other name that he went by was Matthew? the one who wrote the first gospel, the one who wrote to tell us about who Jesus was used to be a tax cheat, a thief, a robber, someone who was utterly hated. In fact, it's been pointed out, some liberal theologians say, well, that couldn't have been Matthew. Why would, why would they have selected someone that odious to write the gospel? That wouldn't have been very credible. It, it couldn't have been. It, it couldn't have been him. Talk about missing the point. That's the point. That's the point. Jesus came for sinners. But I'll just simply say this as well. There might be sacrifices that you're waffling whether to make in your life. Can I really give this up for Jesus? Can I really follow him in this area? Can I really give up that cash cow? Can I really be this generous in that way? And you don't realize that on the other end of that is exactly what Matthew received. As long as this Bible will be passed until Jesus returns, Matthew will be one of the most famous people in all of world history because it was his record that the Holy Spirit used. No, I'm not saying you will be famous for the rest of time until Jesus returns, but simply this, the sacrifice that Levi made was really not a sacrifice at all. Because it found him utterly, uh, it found him entirely in the purpose of God and in the work that God had him to do that has lasted for all this time. A shocking conversion, but one that is such a glorious trophy of grace for us. But notice, secondly, this controversial meal. So Levi, immediately, or who we might say Matthew, 
Matthew, what does he do? At some point, we don't know the exact timing here, but at some point after Levi, Matthew, is saved, he decides to follow Jesus, he invites him over to his house. Jesus comes to this great house. And what does scripture tell us? As Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. So you've got other tax cheats, tax thieves, and they're, of course, friends with Levi. And so they come together with Jesus at Matthew's house and his disciples. But notice he also says, not just tax collectors, but sinners are there. Sinners. Now, this could be one of two things, maybe both. This could refer, number one, to the idea that they were odious moral sinners. They were just open and notorious sinners. They were not just the tax collectors. We might be talking here, those who the Jews would have viewed, these people are the worst of the worst in our society. Now, just stop for a moment. Who would that be in our society? Who would be the ones that in our community here would be viewed as the worst of the worst? As the ones who are really problem? The, the guy running the prostitution ring? The people getting rich off the strip clubs downtown? The people who are involved in all kinds of drug running? Sexual trafficking? The thieves? The, 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 the big wigs downtown who are making money by stealing from the poor? By deceiving them? We're talking the worst of the worst. And now imagine that Jesus, you're out on a Saturday morning knocking on the door, and you come by the notorious drug den in the house or in the neighborhood. You come by the notorious prostitution house in the neighborhood, and you open the door, and there's a feast on the table, and Jesus is sitting there. You say, what's going on here? Now, you need to recognize, not only do we have to come into the culture of first century Palestine about tax collectors, we have to come about, about meals like this. The word that's used here for sat is actually literally the word for reclined. Do you know how they ate meals together in first century Palestine? They reclined. Imagine like a horseshoe type table. And imagine an ottoman, not in which people are sitting straight up like we are and eating and doing that kind of thing. They, they would literally recline. Their feet would be away from the table. Thankfully, remember, we didn't, people didn't like cleaning feet very much. There was a dirty time. The feet were away from the table, and they would recline on an elbow on this ottoman, and they would eat, and they would be around the table, and they would be in a position, very comfortable position, where they would just be able to talk and have very close communication and fellowship. This is where... This idea of hospitality still persists today. This is not just, oh, let's just have a dinner together. This is we are identifying with each other. We are signaling that we are close with one another. We are having community here. We are having a long and relaxing and comfortable meal and conversation with each other. I got a very small taste of this, um, oh, about 20 years ago or so. I was in Jerusalem. And there was a, 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 a group that my father had taken to Jerusalem to look at uh, some of these sites. 
And it was the days, there was, there was a day of rage. There was real conflict then as there is now between the Palestinians and the Jews. And we walked around Jerusalem and there were just armed guards with M16s just everywhere on every street and on every alley. And I don't know exactly, this is, seems crazy now, but I was just a teenager and there was someone else who was a little bit older, in his, probably in his 20s, that we had gone. And we really wanted to, to learn the score of a football game that was happening back in the United States. And so that wasn't the day, obviously. You just had cell phones and ubiquitous wireless access. You could just figure out this at any time. So me and this guy, it was late one night. It was dark. And we said, let's go out and try to find out who won the football game. Let's look for an internet cafe somewhere. And I have no idea, looking back, I have no idea how my dad let me do this, right? But uh, he did. He said, okay, all right, go ahead. I mean, we're in the middle of like days of rage in Jerusalem. And me and this guy, Andy Johnson, if you remember Andy Johnson. And I just take off. And it's in dark. And we're walking through the streets of Jerusalem looking for some internet cafe. And I never, I never, I'll never forget this, but I don't quite remember how it happened. We met someone, a Palestinian man. And we started a conversation with him, and before you know it, he was inviting us to his house. And we said, sure, why not? And so we come into his house, and he's taking the whole family out to us. And he's, he's offering us, can I get you anything to drink? And I'm sure he has, can, can I get you anything to eat? And he's showing us pictures of his family and videos of them performing. And we're just sitting there having just this great time with this guy randomly that's the culture of hospitality. It's friendship. It's identification. It is community. And here Jesus is engaged in this kind of community with the worst of the worst, the dregs, the scum of that society. And not only that, notice. Scripture says, for there were many of these publicans and sinners, and they followed him. It was like a magnet again. They wanted to hear from him. Well, what did the scribes and Pharisees think? Verse 16 tells us, when they saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? This is, their minds are blown. Why? Well, what was the name of the Pharisee? They were separated ones. They didn't do this. This was unthinkable to them. Now, let me ask you this, those of you who know your Old Testaments well, what verse do you think the Pharisees might have quoted to Jesus from the Old Testament to say, how could you even think of doing what you're doing? What verse do you think might they have quoted? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Do you think they might have thrown that in Jesus' face? Jesus, we're not like you because we don't sit in the seat of these wicked sinners. We don't stand in their way. We're not engaged in communication and conversation with them. We're the separated holy ones. You aren't holy enough, Jesus. You aren't separated enough. You aren't isolated enough. You are willing to be a friend of sinners. In fact, when they really wanted to insult Jesus... Other, elsewhere in scripture it records this. Do you know what they called him? They said, you're a glutton. You're a drunkard. You're a wine bibber. Literally, they were calling him a drunkard. You're a glutton. You're a drunkard. And you're a friend of sinners. That's what they said about Jesus. Now, was Jesus 
engaged? Was Jesus identifying with sinners in a sinful way? Of course he was not. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is separate from sinners. Jesus himself is a separated one. He was separated in a way the Pharisees could not understand. He was separated morally what God's intent was the entire time. But what they missed was that their separation was not a true moral separation. They missed that Jesus was identifying with them in a way that did not make him any more sinful, that did not add moral stain to him. You see, there's a way we look at this today. There's some that says, oh, Jesus went and hung out with, with and was a friend of sinners. So that, let's go to the bar and let's throw back a few and let's go to the club. Let's go wherever unsaved people are and we'll identify with them by doing exactly what they do. And we're going to see Jesus had nothing to do with this kind of approach. But he did have something to do with them in the way that he related to them. Notice Jesus' third and finally, his simple explanation for doing what he did. In response, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, now listen to this, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. Now notice the analogy here, because Jesus just destroys their entire complaint with a simple analogy. Who does a doctor go to see? Sick people or healthy people? When you go to a hospital, who do you expect to run into? Sick people or healthy people? When you go to the doctor's office, are you expecting to be surrounded in the waiting room with sick people or healthy people? Well, the answer is obvious. Now, notice what Jesus is saying. Jesus is coming at it on their terms. Let me ask you this. Did the Pharisees see those people, the tax collectors and the open notorious sinners, did he see them as sick or healthy people? Obviously, he, they saw them as deeply sick. Jesus saw them as sick too. But what was the difference? Here was the difference. The Pharisees looked at people that were sick and said, you're contagious. That's what they said. Jesus looked at people who were sick and said, you're curable. You're curable. Pharisees, you're contagious, so we can't get anywhere near you. Jesus, you're curable, so I'm going to go right up near you. I'm not worried about you being contagious. I'm worried about whether you are going to be cured. Now, isn't this so interesting about how Jesus related not just to these open, notorious sinners? Think about the leper. No Pharisee would go near a leper. Why? They would throw eggs at him. They would throw rocks at him. They would stay far away. Why? Because they didn't want to get, they didn't want to get sick. They viewed the leper as contagious. Jesus went to the leper and touched the leper because he knew the leper could be healed. The leper could be cured. And so this very, just very simple analogy, Jesus came to take care of people who are diseased. Now, there's one very simple application here. There is a way that we feel, that you may feel today, 
as someone who is very sick. Oh, I don't mean physically. I mean morally. You know internally that you are sick, that you are loathsome in a way. You think back to what you have done in your life and you say, I've done some really bad things, Pastor. If you knew the things that I've done in my past or that I'm doing today, you would be ashamed and everyone else would be ashamed. And you feel like if the, if the curtain covering your life, cloaking your life, were thrown back, you'd say everyone around me would just scatter. They wouldn't want anything to do with me if I were open and honest. Do you know this is true even in the church? We were talking about this recently. As elders, the, the pride that is in all of us that sometimes wants to have a curtain thrown around our actual life, the way we really live on a day-to-day -day basis, what our spiritual life is really like, what our marriage really is struggling with, what our kids are really involved in, we say, no one can see that. Why? Because they'll think less of me. Because I'll be radioactive. It, it'll show that I am sick, that I, I'm not perfectly healthy. In fact, James counteracts this. The book of James says, confess your faults one to another. Don't try to throw a curtain. Don't try to throw a cloak. Oh, is there a place and a time? Yes. It doesn't mean we're going to get up and publicly confess every single thing that we have ever done. That's not what it means. But it does mean there is to be a spirit of openness and a spirit of being humble and willing but you see, if you are that kind of person who is feeling sick and you are worried that everyone around you is going to think you're contagious, think about what Jesus says. No, you're curable. Come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes the most difficult cases and he cures them. Jesus is the one who takes the most notorious sinners and transforms them for his glory. Jesus is the one who takes the scum, if you will, of society, and says, you're not too sick for me. I'm the great physician. I'll cure you when you come to me by faith. Don't let your own guilt, don't let your own shame, don't let your own previous behavior prevent you from coming to Jesus today and recognizing that his heart is to cure you and to bring you into relationship with him. But note, no, notice not only this analogy, notice what Jesus says next. They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. He then says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus' response to the Pharisees who say, how could you, is to say, how could you miss what my job is? This is not just a, an extension of what I came to do. This is at the heart of it. This is Jesus' mission statement. Why did I come? I came for sinners. I came to call them. C.T. Studd, the great missionary to China and India and other places, said a phrase that I know my, you probably heard my father say if you came to this church then. He said, some wish to live within sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Some wish to live within sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And what he understood is the heart of Jesus, the heart of Jesus for sinners, to say in a real sense, the greater the sinner, the greater the cure. 
the greater the offense, the greater the grace. And he is the one who pursued sinners to call them to repentance. In other words, as I said, this is not Jesus going to fraternize, to get in a crowd like sometimes even Christians do today. This was a person who went to sinners to call them. How to call them? Like he did to Matthew, follow me. Follow me. But how did he call them? Not just by saying, follow me, but by identifying with them, by connecting with them, by treating them not as the scum of the earth, but as real people made in the image of God who are not contagious, but who are curable. And do you know if you and I want to be a witness for Jesus Christ wherever we are, we're going to have to have the same spirit of Jesus? No, not just going to fraternize with people just for the sake of fraternizing. But we're going to have to understand that in order to bring the cure of Jesus to people, we are going to need to get real with them and treat them as people who are made in the image of God and who have a story of the past and a story of the future that God can change in Jesus Christ. Let me just ask all of you here. How many of you came to Jesus Christ because someone came up to you on the street, a stranger came and presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, and you got saved then and there. A stranger came up to you, you connected with them, or maybe knocked on your door, and that was the how you got saved, you came to Christ. All right. How many of you got saved because someone close to you or someone that you had a relationship with gave you the gospel and that is how you came to Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, the simple point, I think there was one. Dan, a man who was saved from a stranger. The rest of us were saved because someone that we knew and that was connected to us shared the gospel. Here's my only point. Both happened, and Jesus ministered to both. He came to a man who was a stranger, Levi, and said, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Jesus then went and connected with other people and made them himself not a stranger to them. In other words, the simple point is this. There are some people who might get saved, praise God, because you run into them on the street. And we should connect with people like that. Praise God for that. But you know there are other people that aren't going to get saved unless you have dinner with them. And unless that dinner is at your house and at their house. And unless you build the kind of relationship with them in which the seeds of the gospel will go down into their heart. We watched not long ago the story of, of, of a woman who was a radical feminist, who was an open lesbian living with a female lover. And we heard her story of how a pastor in a church reached out to her and had her over for dinner weekly for two years before she stepped inside the door of his church. Can you imagine weekly dinners for two years with someone who was an open and very, very uh, 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 notorious sinner? What does that mean? She came to Jesus Christ and now has been used greatly of God to encourage evangelism toward people who are just like her. That kind of identification, that kind of sacrifice, that kind of treatment is the spirit that Jesus calls us to give as well.
The mission statement of Jesus is exactly, in a sense, to be our heart. He came for sinners, and therefore our ministry must be for sinners as well. But there's one more thing. As I thought about this message, I don't think the heart of this message for this church is in the way we relate to sinners. Because if we look back over the life of this church and see all of the notorious sinners that have been sitting among us or maybe sitting among us today, I think we, I'm so grateful for the heart of this church for sinners. You already are in wonderful ways showing the heart of Jesus to those who have lived a notorious past or even a a notorious present. But there is one other thing that I want to bring out of this passage for us, and it's the implication of what Jesus is saying. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes for just a minute. I want you to put yourself in James or John's shoes for just a minute. How did they come to Jesus? Because Jesus was walking by the seaside and saw them fishing and said, follow me. In other words, what did he do? He called them. And now they're sitting there as disciples of Jesus. And Jesus is sitting around the tax cheats, the thieves, the scum of society, the dregs of that culture. And what does Jesus say? He calls them too. And then Jesus defends what he's done by saying, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Do you think Peter stepped back and said, Wait a second. Is he calling me that? Is he saying I was like a tax thief? Is he saying I was like a prostitute? Is he saying I was like the common robber? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he was saying. He's saying I came to call sinners. And friends, do you know what he's saying to us at Straight Gate today? He's saying, I came to call sinners like you and like me. I came to call the dregs of society like you, like me. I came to call the notorious ones who weren't anywhere fit for the kingdom of God like you and like me. You see, it's easy for us to fall into a kind of Pharisaism that recognizes it says, yeah, I would love for people to come into our church who are open and notorious sinners, but not really to feel at our core of, 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 at our core of our being that that's me. No, my sin may not have been as public, but it was just as offensive to God. I may not have been involved in the exact same behavior of that person out in the community that we think of as being the notorious sinner, but mine was sending me to hell just like theirs was. I am no better, and in the end, no different. You see, Paul himself in 1 Timothy 1 includes this wonderful idea. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul knew what his job was. Of whom I am chief. Number one. Paul said if there were a list of open and notorious sinners, I would be number one. I am chief. 
And friends, the more a Christian knows their own heart, the more a Christian knows their own uh, uh, ability to wander and stray from the path, we can find ourselves saying the same things. I'm chief. Surely I must be chief. I, I don't know all the sins of everyone else, but I know my own amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. You see, Jesus was giving a rebuke to the Pharisees. They just didn't get it. Was Jesus, when he said, I came not to call the righteous, was Jesus saying, there are some righteous people out there that don't need me? No, he wasn't. The implicit rebuke to the Pharisees was, you don't need me. You do need me. But as long as you think you're so righteous, you'll never get me. Because I didn't come to call the righteous. I didn't come to call those who think they're good, who think I have nothing to give them. I only came to call sinners. I just want to say to you this morning, friends, if Jesus came to call you, it's because you're a sinner. And I fear that in our churches today, there are all kinds of people who would call themselves Christians, who would know all the answers, who could give the gospel presentation probably more accurately and concisely than you and I. And yet they're not Christians. They're not saved. Why? Because what they've been relying on ultimately is not Jesus, no matter how much they say it, no, much, no matter how much they know how to parrot the words, because they really truly think they're righteous. And ultimately that is what they are standing on for their justification before God. And one day Jesus will say to them, like he will say to the Pharisees, I didn't come to call you. I came to call sinners. I came to call those who are fully aware of what they are before me and are humble enough to fall down before me and say, I'm a sinner. Have you humbled yourself before Jesus? Do you embrace what you are before him? And most importantly, have you accepted the grace that came to save a wretch like you and a wretch like me. This passage, this passage is that Jesus came for sinners and that means he came for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We think of that man who was in the temple, that Pharisee who, who, when he prayed, said, Lord, I thank you that I am not like X, Y, and Z, notorious sinners. He didn't leave justified. He didn't leave right with God. But the one who was an open and notorious sinner and who pounded his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, he was made right with you. Oh, I pray, Father, let not our deception blind our eyes. We are sinners. We must accept that in humility if we are going to get cured by the great physician. And I pray, Father, would you humble our hearts? Would we see in a new way the depth of our sin and the great extent of your grace that is such a scandal to those who are proud? 
Let's pause for a moment. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That means he'll be a friend to you if you admit it. Jesus came for sinners. Why don't you sing it with me if you know it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen. Dave, would you come close us in prayer? Lord, we know that we are sinners before a holy God. We thank you that you have come to our lives and blessed us with your presence. And because we eat of your flesh and drink of your blood, we are involved with you and you give us eternal life and your Holy Spirit as a down payment of this uh, precious life that we've received. We'll be with you forever. We praise, praise your holy name. Amen.